0: You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get
1: ready to rumble!
0: Wherever you are, however, you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Weston Williams, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Ashley Hardgrave. This week, Francesca Zambello goes inside the huddle. The legendary director and intendantin shares her philosophy on how to make an opera company an attractive place to work and previews Shostakovich's The Nose, her current project at Chicago Opera Theater. Then, a field report from PJ on the Met's new Florencia in El Amazonas. Plus, in the two-minute drill, a British student stumbles upon an old Salieri manuscript thought to be lost. Was it sabotage by dun-dun-dun? Mozart? Probably not. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Spotify. Click follow on Apple Podcasts. Hit the plus sign. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes. Mailbag at operaboxscore.com. Or you can just record your thoughts using the You Got Something to Say page on our website, operaboxscore.com. However you contribute, you'll get an OBS beer coaster, an OBS lapel pin, and the all-new number one OBS fan foam finger. Just for sharing your own hot take. And without further ado, Ashley Hardgrave, I'm going to start with you today.
2: Wow, mixing it up. Impressive, Mr. Williams. Uh, I have chosen to spend my Monday night with you two lovely folks, as opposed to watching Monday Night Football where the Bears are taking on the Vikings, because it's going to end in disaster. However, (laughs) at the moment, they are up three to nothing, with five minutes left in the second We'll see how long this good vibes last.
0: Oliver Camacho, my blood type is turkey right now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'd believe it. I had, um, and Oliver might be shocked at this. I had vegan tofurkey for Thanksgiving this year. Oh no! Which is, uh, you know, (laughs) well, it's what happens when you have dietary restrictions. But I'll tell you what was more stressful than tofurkey on Thanksgiving. That was the uh, tides who turn around in those last (laughs) last bit of that iron ball. ball. Jesus. I mean, the tide did roll. I was not wrong, but, but man, it had to roll back before it rolled forward. (laughs) But, you know, we got there in the end. Let's talk some opera. (laughs) Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Francesca
1: Zambello is currently in Chicago to direct... Chicago Opera Theater's production of The Nose, conducted by Lydia Yankovskaya with a cast chock-full of Chicago-area singers. She joins us to talk about that production and also to share some of her ideas about uh, her philosophy on making an opera company a good place to work. And we go over generally her uh, history as a... Uh, Intendantin as a producer and as a general director and how uh, the audience is so important to her that she really uh, makes a lot of decisions based on audience happiness. Before we dive into this interview uh, we'll hear a little bit of music from the nose from the recording featuring the Cologne Radio Symphony Orchestra conducted by Mikhail Jurowski. <laughs> Our guest today is none other than Francesca Zambello. Welcome to Opera Boxcore. I have to say that your name came into my consciousness as a gay man in the late 90s. Uh, because I heard about this in uh in Glimmerglass, which is one of your major uh roles that you've had in your career. You know, I've also heard that you are really into audiences and you really are have studied audiences and you get in the audience's space and you try to figure out what do you guys want what is what do you what do you need how are you going to come to the opera and i feel like the envisionee is the thing that got my attention even though i didn't see it but it felt like okay she she understands who's coming to the opera she's going to give them something that they won't forget and it sort of launched this whole bear hunks era and um i mean let's just be clear i mean like a lot of gay men go to opera (laughs) <laughs> was that your? Is that what your strategy was, or just like, no, Nathan's a beautiful guy. Um, he can do this, you know.
3: Well, so that was in um, God, ninety-seven. That was my debut at Glimmerglass, and then it went on to City Opera. Uh, mm. the late lamented. Um, and it was, you know, I, I think it, it's two things you mentioned. You know, yes, I, I, I did think it's a Greek drama. It, it mm. wasn't even. You know, thinking, oh, my God, Nathan and Bill Burden are incredibly attractive, you know, young, the generation of, you know, emerging opera singers who are great singers, actors and have amazing physicality, something that we sometimes take for granted today with with a lot of uh, singers. But so I said you know, in, I wanted to do a production that, that was like the Greeks. And I was like, Mm -hmm. the Greeks wore like men wore diapers basically. (laughs) And I told them that about eight months before. And I said, this is the costume. Can we go with it? I asked them and they said, yes. And I said, do you think you could work towards status of making me believe that you had been sailing around the Aegean in very few clothes? And, it will also be very physical because the love story of Iphigenia and Reed is, of course, the sister. She loves her her brother, Orest, but of course, Orest loves his best friend, Pilatus, and vice versa. And so I said, it's also a Greek story, a love story between the two men. Uh, and it, I mean, now we call it a bromance.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
3: and so I just, with Nathan, I didn't, you know, the, the term of Barahunks, I sort of just Think I said it, and then it suddenly hit the internet uh, as the internet <laughs> was just getting going. And and now I don't know. I mean, a lot of people uh, think that that's inappropriate, and so I'm like, you know, because we we just have to be cautious how we describe people's physicality now.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. But I, and I agree with you, and I I say it because. I know a lot of these people, Nathan and I've interviewed him for a couple of times. And he's very comfortable talking about it. And, you know, we don't want to objectify people, but, you know, it was a moment in opera and it continues to still have influence, uh, in, you know, that era in opera, you know, and how singers prepare. I mean, you look at a role like dead man walking. Now you can't even think about singing that role unless you're willing to do whatever, 20 pushups on
3: stage. <laughs> we have to do 20 full body pushups. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I mean, for me, the genesis of that was really the story and the the of Greek men. Uh, and of course, you know, even then I I am no fool. you know, a lot of gay men love opera. gay women do too. Uh, and I am someone who, when you mention this, I do believe it in the audience. I believe that we there's a difference, I think, between like saying, oh, let's cater to the audience, but why should we not? try to make our audiences happy and enjoy what they're seeing uh, because we want them to come back. Uh, I mean, it's as simple as that. And of course opera is a lot of micro audiences. You know, there is a gay audience. There is what we call a legacy audience of people who are, you know, of a certain age. There's a great new audience emerging, which is people who are recently retired, the baby boomers who never had time to go who are falling in love with opera. There is millennials. There are Gen X, but each of them, in a way, there are overlaps. I've learned of things they like, but also sometimes you just really got to focus on specific groups when you're marketing or creating, uh, creating, you know, your show. And and I speak that way as a director, but also as a producer of many many productions. And where I will often try to steer a production team in a certain direction. Or give them notes that I think you know might make a better experience for the audience,
1: even though I'm a Gen Xer, I had a very traditional introduction to opera. I was mentored the way it used to be when one gay generation taught the younger gay generation how to appreciate the finer things in life. And um you know, that generation all died because of AIDS, and so we did lose, I think, you know, a lot of mentors. And that's, that's why I blame my generation of gays as not being, uh, as, um, you know, interested in certain aspects of what has used to be our culture in the gay community. Um, but setting gay people aside, um, I was talking about how you literally go into the audiences and you want to meet them and talk to them. And there's this article that, uh, Anthony Tomasini wrote about you when you had, uh, concluded your tenure at glimmerglass which i'll link to in the podcast so people can read that but it also applies to your uh, initiatives in the DEI space and this is these are initiatives that you were doing even before DEI was like a word <laughs> can you talk about that as a strategy like going back to your time at glimmerglass and your work at wno and just trying to think about how to bring in different audiences
3: uh, well, for me, I think you know everything that I have worked on, particularly in like leadership position of management, which is now thirteen years between Glimmerglass and then eleven years at, at WNO. Uh, my stated goal in both places, which I publicly stated, was that at least a third, if not a half, of our casting must not be white. We didn't have the term BIPOC when I was getting going. Mm-hmm. And that at least fifty percent of the creative team—you know, composer, librettist, or conductor, director, designers—must be not white men. So I pretty much I practiced that to the letter in in both companies and still do. Uh, and of course now you know DEI has made it more popular and more, uh, of course, important and other companies that followed suit and And I think, in a way, uh, it was embedded in me early on as a director, uh starting in the freelance circuit, you know really <laughs> you know in the mid eighties, and of course, being a woman, you know, I was facing my own prejudices, uh, my own you know discrimination you know, a lot, of course, you know, then, of course, added discrimination if you came out um particularly for women, it was harder, but, I, but I saw, you know, a lot of colleagues, you know, particularly black singers, particularly, uh, who I saw like not getting cast in roles that I thought like, well, boy, I would have cast them. So when I got in a position, even as a director by the nineties where I could sit in the casting meetings, because that's how it happens. You're in the casting meeting with the head of a company, sometimes with the conductor, you know, with the administrator, the chief administrator. And I would really try to pitch singers that there was some diversity in the casting. So, it, and I was like, we can't ever expect audiences to come if they don't see themselves on stage. It's as simple as that. We can't expect audiences to pay attention if you don't put a picture, a big picture of a woman as a conductor out there, or if you don't see them bow. I mean, those are the things that make, excuse me, that make audiences pay attention. So I said, not only am I preaching this philosophically, but I think it's important that we, <laughs> that we do this because this is what our society is. If we want this art form to survive. And believe me, when I was saying things like that early on, there was a lot of pushback. I, I heard a lot of things I would never repeat. Uh, in an interview, that were extremely disheartening and dispiriting and and upsetting, uh, sexist and racist, I, I just phenomenally so. Um, well, it still exists, unfortunately. <laughs> yes, of course it exists, but 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 we are doing marginally better in a lot of ways. And and this was also at a time before we even thought not just about casting and hiring of creative teams, but also of topics. We were not using opera in the in the way that, in many ways, that its initial tradition was that it was a social and political voice. And that's something that really has come to the forefront, especially in American works in the last decade. And the other, I'd have to say, underrepresented group, so to speak, that I used to make a lot of noises about and still do, is youth and children and youth. I, I said, like, why are we doing operas that we're saying are family operas and we don't have like whole families in them and children. And so I've commissioned a number of works that are not like kid operas, but they have kids in them or there's a kid's course. I I just think, you know, the action of of seeing the person on stage brings together more in the audience. So for me, it's sort of been a multilateral uh, quest.
1: And the formula has always existed. I mean, as much as people might like uh groan about it when the children's chorus comes out in carmen it's always such a delight like people just get so excited to see their whatever their their little kid up on stage or like a kid they recognize and like it's just a 2 minutes of just joy for everybody you know so why not do it more often probably because it's expensive and it's late and <laughs> you
3: need childcare <laughs> Well, what's harder to be truthful is operas like Tannhäuser, where the yeah. kids appear in the last 15 minutes of the yeah. opera. But but it's more, I don't know, I've worked on commissions or commissioned, you know, things like, you know, The Little Prince, uh, The Odyssey, mm-hmm. r- uh, Robin Hood. Uh, just, uh, this has probably been about, a, uh, we did operas at, with Carlos Simon and Mo Willem at the Kennedy Center, Slopera. Uh, We put things out on trucks during the pandemic so families could see and hear opera. So for me, that's been sort of a parallel quest with equity in hiring across the board.
1: Speaking of children, a common theme we have uh, running through our show over these past years is talking about uh, being in the opera industry and being a parent. And we often poll our guests when they're willing to talk about it. You know, what are the organizations that thought about your status as a parent and which organizations supported you? And I would say most people, when they were forced to come up with a name, uh, your name came up as being somebody who thinks comprehensively about how to support artists um when did that start for you when did you understand that oh in order to get this singer i need to like make sure there's somebody around that can watch their
3: kid (laughs) well i'm so touched to hear that thank you I, i i think you know living life a lot on the road you know most people's jobs are on the road unless they have a let's say a fest contract in germany and I've always thought it's really important, again, a sort of global view, it's important as an artist to have a personal life. I think that having a personal life makes you a better artist. Not everybody agrees with that, but I think we have to support that. And I do think, you know, you see, I guess I watched a lot of women in their 30s drop out of the profession because they wanted to have children and there was no support for it while they were pursuing a career. So therefore, it was suddenly like all the men were doing much better going into their 40s. And we were suddenly saying, okay, where's the next generation of, you know, young sopranos and mezzos, we'll just pair that. And I realized that we weren't supporting uh, the family situation, particularly for women enough. And that's not to say that there aren't plenty of men who have done their share of letting their wife go out and be on the road. And I never would presume otherwise, but there was just a demographic about that. And so uh, I've always tried to do things like, you know, make sure that the holiday breaks that we leave early enough and come back late enough, make sure that somebody, if they're coming in, they're bringing their Nanny, if they can afford a nanny, you know, then you know, making sure we work around their schedule, making sure that if they can't afford a nanny, that we find a way to do rehearsals where you know they their kids can be doing something else. I'm always big on like give them all the give them all the information, like certainly at WNO and Glimmerglass on where there are childcare centers, where there're camps, where there's things that kids can do because keeping kids busy as a parent, (laughs) is the most important thing that you can do. And um, so I I think for me, it's just been a matter of concern. It's not just the kid thing, but respecting the whole picture for artists. Because, you know, again, it's a no-brainer. But if somebody is happy and not worried, not worried about where is their child, they will sing better. And it's my goal, of course, that they sing better or act better. Uh, And so I think it's just something that I've been attuned to, not just for performers, but also for the whole staff. And I think, you know, of course, now we're much more conscious of, you know, life work balance. But I've been doing this forever and been just tried to be really in tune to it. Look, if it was the kind of thing where I knew if the soprano came three days later, three days late for rehearsal, she would see her kids show in school, and her grandma her own mother would be there to take care of the kid. whatever. then I'd be like, "Ah, eh, just let it happen because then they're going to show up, and they're going to feel like, "Okay, now I can focus and do a good job and And, you know, we don't live in a country. It's interesting when you work in Scandinavian countries, for example, you rehearse in the morning, like until two o'clock because everyone goes home to take care of their kids then. And yeah. then you rehearse like eight to eleven in the evening, which can be tiring, but it's usually after kids have gone to bed. so Anyway, so that's my kid thing. And yes, I am a parent. And yes, I know how important it is. And yes, I've been just like other parents done many uh, midnight train, an overnight flight, uh, uh, getting up at four in the morning to drive somewhere to make sure I was there to make pancakes for breakfast. That's just that's part of the game. But I just tried to make it easier for people.
1: Well, the, you you are currently working with one of the most incredible women uh, that I think is in our industry right now, uh, Lydia Nkovskaya. Um, I don't know if you had met her before you arrived at Chicago Opera Theater, but she's just she's mind-blowing in what she's able to do and how dedicated she is to her work. And also, clearly, what a great mother she is at the same time. It's like, how, how does she do it all?
3: Uh, well, I, I have never directed something that Lydia conducted, but I did hire her very early in her career to conduct at Washington National Opera several. She's conducted there a couple of times, and then I had her at Glimmerglass twice to conduct. So I've worked with her a lot, but only as a producer, not as a director. And yes, I have absolutely have enormous respect for her and her beautiful children and her lovely husband, who is an attorney, and I am married to a trial lawyer, so I, <laughs> so I, I understand their schedules as well. Uh, and I think you know, just here now, working at Chicago Opera Theater with Lydia conducting the Nose and directing the Nose, it's just been a phenomenally joyful experience so far.
1: So the Nose—that's why we're uh, talking today because you are in Chicago. Uh, the Nose opens on December eighth. And it's not an opera many people know about, and I wonder if the decision to choose this opera has something to do with our current political climate, or is it just that it's a work that needs to be heard, or is it a little bit of A and a little bit of B? From your perspective, why program The nose?
3: Well, Lydia wanted to program it actually before the pandemic, and we spoke about it. So it's been in her conscience, obviously. for some time and then it finally came together. And I think that C.O.T. probably thought a lot about programming a Shostakovich opera. However, for any people who know a bit of his history, you know, he was an incredible dissident. He was anti-government. I mean, everything that Shostakovich wrote symphonically and in the opera world, piano pieces, they all have an undercurrent of defiance and defiance against the system. Uh, And for him, it was the Soviet system. So I think it's so appropriate to be doing this now, where it's so much a story based on the Gogol short story of the same name that is really about the little person being squashed by the system and the superficiality of many parts of, of class ranking. And so I think that those issues are ever present, you know, globally, but also very much clearly uh, right now, um, as you know, we're in this we're in this just terrible period of history. And so I think that's a big part of this story. But also, I want to say Shostakovich uses absurdism and satire. And that's, you know, the piece is light, like you laugh a lot. It's a lot of, it's a funny ha-ha. And which I think is also a good thing right now.
1: Is there something about this uh, particular cast or production that uh, you feel will uh, entice people to check it out?
3: Well, I think the cast is phenomenal. Um, Led by Alexei Bogdanov, who I know has sung here a lot. Um, And then Curtis Bannister is the nose and... The thing that I have loved working here is that almost all of the cast, barring just a couple of people, are from Chicago. And Chicago has a really deep pool of superb musicians and vocalists. Uh, And I know that from working at the Lyric a number of times. And so for me, this experience has been phenomenal with our cast of 36. It's a big cast. And every person plays like five roles. Uh, except for the nose and Alexei, who's the character who he loses his nose because the idiot barber played by Wilbur Pauley sh- mistakenly shaves off his nose. Uh, and so, but the nose, of course, is, is a symbol really of someone who is insignificant and rises to power. And that, that's, that's sort of part of the whole absurdism of this piece. So, so for me, the great thing about doing it has been getting to know so many Chicago performers who I didn't know before. Uh, and so to me, that's another great reason to see the piece is just this this rainbow of amazing talent here.
1: Well, that did it for me. I mean, you're right about Chicago Opera Theater. I think that was one of Lydia's initiatives uh, when she came is to make the company more Chicago-centric. And a lot of those people on stage are literally my colleagues And uh, I know when they're all at a rehearsal, I was like, oh, that's because they're in the nose. That's why I can't hang out with those people. (laughs) And I understand that there's also a choreographer involved in this production.
3: One of the amazing things about Shostakovich's score was he wrote many on-tracks, even like a four minute percussion on-track, which are clearly invitations to dance and movement. And so I have been collaborating with Kia Smith of Chicago South Dance. And her amazing troupe of young dancers who have brought a sort of style of contemporary choreography as well as, I would say, sort of Soviet constructivist movement into the story. And so it's been a joy to collaborate with her as well as uh, other Chicago artists, Marcus Doshi, who is the set and lighting designer, uh, who is part of the Northwestern faculty. So I've I brought it on board not just in terms of working with all these great performers, but also Chicago creative teams to to work together.
1: Francesca Zambello, it has been so amazing to meet you. Uh, I hope we can talk again in the near future. Um, very much looking forward to the nose, which opens on December eighth, and the second performance is on December tenth. Thanks for coming to Opera Box Score.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Oliver.
1: Once again, the Cologne Radio Symphony Orchestra, music from Shostakovich's The Nose, conducted by Mikhail Jurovsky. The Nose opens December 8th, and the second performance, the second and final performance,
0: is December 10th. I am so pumped for a little bit of Shostakovich action here in Chicago. It's going to be good. Ashley, are you pumped for anything in the sports world?
2: I mean, I'm trying not to get pumped in the sports world, honestly, because these men, are they're just too violent to play professional sports. (laughs) Draymond Green, listeners, I don't know how much you know about this whole Draymond Green thing, but in NBA Profiles, Draymond Green's going on the record saying that he has no regrets about putting Rudy Gobert in a headlock and getting ejected and suspended from a Timberwolves-Warriors game. Uh, My posit is maybe it's because he's going after the French guy in the NBA who went after one of his teammates. But he says, I don't live my life with regrets. I'll come to a teammate's defense anytime I'm in a position to come to a teammate's defense. What matters to me is how the people that I care about feel first and foremost. How are the people that I care about affected? How are the people I care about? What do they deal with? That's it for me. So don't worry about headlocks. Just be nice to anybody that Draymond Green cares about.
0: (laughs) Oliver, it's time. What's the tennis update?
1: Well, this is like the weird part of the season where there's all these extra tournaments that I don't know like how these players agree to do them because they've already played since January and they're playing all the way to the end of November. But uh, the Davis Cup concluded this weekend and Italy uh, won the overall cup with Yannick uh, Sinner uh, beating Novak Djokovic in the semifinals against Croatia. Uh, he rallied uh, from the second set down 6-2 to beat Djokovic in the third set 7-5. And that's the uh, third singles match uh, between Djokovic and Sinner in the last 12 days. And Sinner has won two of those three. So um, way to beat the world number one, Yannick Sinner. It bodes really well for his 2024
0: Make sure you subscribe to our podcast for more engaging tennis commentary and also opera stuff I guess on Spotify click follow on Apple Podcasts hit the plus sign.
4: Yeah, you got something to say? Then yeah, all right, you can say something. This is Listener Mailbag.
5: Hello Opera Box Score. This is PJ. I'm here with Donald Levine. Donald we just finished the first act of Florencia and El Amazonas, which, by the way, I have a lot of fun saying. Yes. I'm enjoying that. We're in the Opera House. We did not go up to the uh, veranda. It has been a tour de force, act one. It's blown my mind. I'm kind of pulling my thoughts together. But, Donald, can you tell us a little bit about what you know, your experience with this opera, and what you've, uh, what you've heard tonight?
4: Well, I saw it on the West Coast first about 20 years ago. The most recently, I saw it in Chicago at the Lyric Opera about four or five years ago. Today we have uh, Eileen uh, Perez, who is, uh, I guess, the leading uh, Mexican-American soprano. She's born in Chicago, her parents are Mexican, she's an American girl. It's It's a beautiful voice and she's perfect for this.
5: She is perfect for this and when she just jumped on stage prior to boarding the ship, the El Dorado. There was a huge cry. The crowd really is receptive to her, as well as this entire production. It's a very well-heeled opening night here at the Met. This is the first time we've seen this production ever, here in New York, at this stage at least. And I'll just say that the music is so sumptuous, and of course I can do nothing to describe that here, but I will just suggest go to your favorite music streaming device of choice and listen to this and put on headphones and dive in. The music flows over you. You get lost inside it. The only thing I could come up with was Debussy, but I'm not even sure that does justice to this. This is a tour de force of sound. What I love most about it, besides the beautiful vocal line,
4: the orchestral music is so lush and beautiful. I mean, it could survive on its own without the singing. I hear shades of of, uh, Puccini and Strauss and Debussy especially. Parts of it remind me in compositional style of Puccini's La Fanciulla del West, which reminds many people of Debussy also. I'd forgotten how beautiful it was. I'm surprised it took so long to get to the mat. The production
5: is just stunning. We have puppetry, we have Dancers taking on the role of piranha and waves and flying mariposas and this is just something to behold and we've got a, a bird's eye view. Enough of this. Thanks so much for listening. We're delighted to be able to share what we see here in New York with everyone. We'll see you again, Opera Boxcore.
4: Wait, wait one more thing. This is going to be, I think December 6th, it's going to be one of the Met in HD in the movie theaters and Everybody should go see it. It
0: is a beautiful work, and I just hope the Met keeps reviving it. See you later, listener mailbag. Thanks, PJ, coming for our jobs once again. (laughs) If you want to be just like PJ, send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes, mailbag at operaboxscore.com, or just record your thoughts using the You Got Something to Say page on our website, operaboxscore.com. It's the two-minute drill. This just in the two minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Operland this week.
2: Syracuse Opera has canceled the remainder of its 23 24 season and furloughed staff, citing waning audiences and financial uncertainty. Board Chair Camille Tisdell says that ticket sales are down 40 to 60 percent from where they were prior to the COVID 19 pandemic. Syracuse Opera was founded in 1974.
1: Good news for cinemas, theatrical programming distributor Fathom Events has surpassed its 2019 box office record of $80 million. Thanks in part to non-Hollywood offerings like Broadway shows, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, and The Mets broadcasts in HD, Fathom Programming has served as a lifeline to theaters struggling after years of release schedule disruptions brought on by COVID-19 and the recent dual labor strikes. Eclectic offerings not only filled an auditorium on slow nights, they also present an area of growth in an industry still struggling to match
0: pre-pandemic revenue levels. Paris Opera has announced a new initiative to make the company more ecologically friendly over the next decade. Goals include the reduction of electricity usage by 10 percent, switching to renewable energy sources and decreasing the use of water in the opera Bastille by 30 percent. Sorry, thirsty opera goers, said General Director Alexander Neef, quote, Art is born from constraint. Integrating environmental challenges to our activities is not an obstacle to the liberty of creation but an opportunity to enrich the way we think about projects and the way that the opera interacts with its public and partners.
2: Music written for the opening night of La Scala in 1778 has been restored and performed for the first time in over 200 years. University of Huddersfield student Ellen Stokes found the lost ballet music for Antonio Salieri's opera Europa riconosciuta in the archives of the Austrian National Library. Stokes said the ballet was, quote, jumbled up within the pages of four manuscripts, says Stokes. I believe that I have restructured one of his ballets. It was his first international opera and was his international break. This ballet was believed lost in its full state, and scholars thought it only existed in a fragmentary form.
1: The Opera Awards have announced the Dutch National Opera's Amsterdam Opera House as the winner of the 2024 Best Opera House. Dutch National Opera, under its director Sophie de Lint, Shows in an exemplary way how an opera house can be relevant and win acceptance in a diverse modern urban society, said jury chair Ulrich Runke. Its core identity as an opera house remains at the forefront of programming and perception, anchoring the art form in the
2: future. In trade news, the BBC Proms is searching for a new director, following the announcement that David Picard will be leaving the position next summer. He's held the position for nine years. Meanwhile, Grand Théâtre de Genève has appointed Alan Peru to succeed Avial Khan as general manager of the company starting in 26-27 season, and Oprah Leipzig has tapped Croatian conductor Ivan Repusic to be the company's new music director starting in 2025
0: in less auspicious trade news everyone's least favorite alleged milanese restaurateur Valery gergiev will become the general director of the bolshoi theater following putin's call to unify that theater and the mariinsky this will be the first time both institutions will be under the control of the same person since the existence of the russian empire symbolism anyone
2: On the disabled list, Lisa Dobinson pulled out of the final performance of Yennifa at Lyric Opera of Chicago due to a family emergency. Friend of the show, Katherine Henry, was waiting in the wings to make her triumphant debut, and Oliver was there to see it. More on that in just a moment.
1: Daniel Berenboim has canceled his North American tour in a statement, Berenboim said, It is with great regret that I need to withdraw from the Staatskapelle Berlin's upcoming concert tour to North America and Canada. My help simply does not allow me to undertake such strenuous transatlantic,
0: transatlantic travel required for this tour. I am thankful for everyone's understanding and good wishes. Exit stage right, Pulitzer Prize-winning composer and Guggenheim fellow David Tredici has died at 86. Tredici is considered a pioneer of the neo-romantic movement. He was also described by the LA Times as, quote, one of our most flamboyant outsider composers. He was a music professor at the City College of New York and sat on the boards of Yaddo, the McDowell Colony, and the Aaron Copland Fund for Music.
1: Music critic and journalist Anthony Holden has passed away at 76. He received notoriety as the biographer of artists, including Shakespeare, Tchaikovsky, Daponte, Olivier, and members of the British royal family, including Prince Charles. He also published translations of opera and ancient Greek poetry and several autobiographical books about
2: poker. Bulgarian conductor Yulian Kovachev has died at 63. Kovachev studied with Herbert von Karajan in Berlin before making his operatic debut in 1985 in Italy. He performed with such companies as La Scala, San Carlo in Naples, Teatro dell'Opera in Rome, Arena di Verona, and Teatro Le Fenice in Venice.
0: French based baritone Virgil Ancelet has died unexpectedly last week. The Baroque specialist won the Clermont-Ferrand International Singing Competition in 2009 and went on to collaborate with such organizations as Les Arts Florissants, Les Poèmes Harmoniques, Les Paladins, Sagittarius, and Pygmalion. And on this day, November 27th, premieres include Antonio
1: Draghi's Il Vincitor Magnanimo Tito Quintio Flaminio, or Flaminio. In Vienna in 1692, and another draghi uh, joint, his <laughs> La Forza dell'Amor filiale, also in Vienna in 1698. Rameau had two first performances: his opera ballet Le Temps de la Guerre uh, in Versailles, and his opera ballet Les Surprises de l'Amour, also in Versailles, 1745 and 1748 respectively. Gaspare Spontini's Milton premiered in Paris in 1804. Michael Balfa's The Bohemian Girl premiered in London in 1843. Amilcare Ponchielli's La Gioconda*, the fourth version, premiered in 1879 in Genoa. In the year 1900, Antonin Dvorak finished *Rusalka*. In 1903, it was the first performance of uh, er, uh, er- Hermano. Er- *Ermano*, Ermano Ferraris' Le Donne Curiose, uh, which premiered in Munich, 1903. And birthdays include uh, bass baritone Michael Devlin, born in Chicago in 1942, and tenor Neil Rosenshine, born in New York City on this day, November 27th in 1947. And that is your two-minute drill. Just a little bit of the really the only aria that people know from La Lesiana, the opera that premiered on this day by Chilea, that is the uh, La solita storia del pastore, uh, sung by the great Ferruccio Tagliavini. Uh, I recommend that you seek that entire recording of that aria, Um, just a different way of singing, Uh, just willing to go to extremes. And um, I really like the tone. I know for some people it's maybe too open, but I'm into it. Uh, so we promised we would talk about uh, Lisa Davidson bowing out of the last Yanufa. Uh, really heartbreaking for audiences who their only availability to see the show was going to be the Sunday during Thanksgiving weekend. I was one of them. Uh, I managed actually to see it um, on uh, its penultimate performance. I was invited by a guest but my tickets were for Sunday. And had I not seen it on Tuesday, I would have missed Lisa Davidson. But I can report that Catherine Henry nailed it. Yeah. Uh, just like she was so prepared for uh, the run of the Lord of Christ at Santa Fe Opera. She was extremely prepared for Yanufa. She had her phrasing down. I don't know if her Czech was good or not because I don't speak Czech, but she didn't <laughs> seem to have, she didn't seem to have any memory slips or word slips. Um, she did all of the staging and it's very involved, physical staging. And uh I thought, you know, she put her own stamp on it. I mean, Lisa Davison obviously is a voice in a million. Catherine Henry sang it with more of a bel canto approach. Mm. Uh, and it was beautiful. And it definitely made more of a contrast between her and Nina Stemma as uh was more about like youth. And I mean, not that Lisa Davidson doesn't sound young, but Lisa Davison sounds so powerful that she goes toe-to-toe with Kostelnishka, whereas in this version, uh Yanufa is diminutive. Yeah. If that makes sense. At know? the
2: same time, though, I mean, that feels like the way to play it. Uh, when you've when you're coming into something that is so heavily weighted and so many eyes are gonna be on you to try to match the power of Elisa Davidson. I I think yeah. you're setting yourself up for failure. So yeah, pulling that back, yeah. going a little more bel canto, being literally easier on yourself physically, so that you can do all of the other things that you have to do physically. It's it sounds like it was the right way to go.
0: Let's talk a little bit about uh, we we just talked about a, a a a fortuitous circumstance arising from tragedy. Let's talk about a tragedy arising from tragedy. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> I, I, you know, whenever George isn't here, I feel like so much pressure to come up with transitions, and sometimes it's difficult. Uh, But let's talk a little bit about Syracuse Opera. Um, Oh, R.I.P. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, the latest in a series of disappointing uh, collapses, shall we say, over the past, you know, year or so. Um, And uh, this seems to be... The pattern that is, that is kind of, you know, happening over and over again that, uh, very suddenly out of nowhere, these smaller regional companies will just, you know, set out a press release that says, look, folks, we're out of money. Goodbye. <laughs> You know, I I feel like, you know, every time this happens and this has happened, you know, far more than I'd be comfortable doing, because it's putting me back in mind of, you know, the the Great Recession era, you know, downfall of a number of houses during that time frame. But it feels like this time the the key is unexpectedness. Right. You know, uh, I, I feel like during the recession we got a little bit more warning for certain companies going yeah. under, you know, or like, like, like this will be, we'll be able to go to the end of the season. And then that will be it instead of, you know, we're dropping everything right here, right now. Yeah, um,
2: this did feel a little bit more abrupt, like the rug literally was pulled out from underneath all of us because it was literally weeks ago that there were write ups on the opening of their 2324 season. They were doing this right. really great piece, you know, sort of exploring the the challenges of the immigration crisis. They were doing The things that we are wanting opera companies to do, they're doing everything right. They're partnering with smaller companies for productions like they did with Tri-Cities and Binghamton. They're going for more new provocative pieces. Uh, you know, they're, they're amending their, their sales models so that they can sort of adapt with the time. So they did everything that they were supposed to do. And it's such a bummer that it didn't come through. I mean, I know we're going to talk about Fathom in a minute, but like, you know, opera is far and away the most expensive art form. It just is. There's just so yeah. many moving parts. And all of those moving parts involve people that have to move said parts, either physically or, you know, mechanically. And so it just takes more people, more money. And, uh, there was an interesting uh, pull quote that came from, uh, the Syracuse Post Standard. It's a, it's a stage director. He's a Syracuse stage artistic director, Bob Hupp. And he said the next 24 months, let's say, are going to be a big challenge for theaters and opera companies across the country. It's going to be tough before it gets better. I fear this is not going to be the last of these abrupt closures that we're going to see. And it breaks my heart for Syracuse because that's a, that's a pretty big, you know, it's, it's a, there's a lot of people there. They deserve, they deserve to have good art in their backyard.
1: They had a four opera season Uh, This immigration story called I Am a Dreamer Who No Longer Dreams by Jorge Sosa and Cerise Lim Jacobs was the fall production. Their holiday time production uh, was a show about the Christmas truce of 1914 called All is Calm by Peter Rothstein. Oh,
2: that would have been so important right now. And
1: then in uh, the new year and in the spring, they had the Fantastics and the Barber Seville. So clearly they're... Their moneymakers were going to be in 2024 and yeah. they sort of ga- they gambled on doing stuff that was more edgy and more, you know, um, relevant, quote unquote, yeah. um, in the front half of their season. And I wonder if that's the lesson to be learned. Like if you are the type of company that is going hand to mouth, maybe you need to put your money maker at the front of the season to... To float the rest of your season, you know. Yeah, see how much
0: money you have left for the interest. <laughs> 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 exactly. Yeah. I mean,
2: I hate the Fantastics, but if you need to do it to get butts and seats, I mean, have at it.
0: Yeah, it's 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 interesting too to me, you know, because uh, I I feel like you know, uh, obviously the numbers forty to sixty percent down tough. from pre pandemic levels is is pretty rough, um, but uh, at the same time, you know, how many, you know, I I feel like. <laughs> ticket prices are becoming such a smaller and smaller part of what is actually creating the funding for companies like this so no it's it's donors
2: know. it's grants it's corporations that's exactly I mean, freaking what was it lockheed martin didn't they sponsor right? wnos
0: <laughs> yes they did well it was uh it was either it was that or uh it was some general like dynamics something like it might have lockheed. been general dynamics yeah, yeah. But it, it's uh, it, it's one of those things where it's so it's so important to almost secure that funding independently of whether or not the you like, ideally, you have an opera company set up so that if not a single person buys a ticket, you, you are still funded right for the show. And I, uh, you know, I, I don't think they uh, quite manage that this time. Uh, but interestingly, on the sort of other half of that equation, you know, we see a lot of live events, not just opera, but also Broadway, straight plays, um, ballet. A lot of them are, are suffering from, um, you know, the sort of uh post-pandemic slump in ticket prices but interestingly enough fathom events is doing so well based on those. in many cases those very same live performances which i just find find interesting you know winnie the pooh blood and honey
2: i come on too much I can't. <laughs> that's absolutely ridiculous it's it's cheaper to do it's easier to do it gives people that feeling of gathering for some like event specific moment but they're not having to go through the rigmarole they, they know how to go to movie theaters some of these people right. may not know how to go to broadway shows or operas or may not be able to get to a place where a broadway show or an opera is held and you know it's it's more simple technology than trying to manage all of the different broadcasts through the different streaming channels so if you do it through one streaming channel in a movie theater it, it's the most cost-effective way to do it so i get it i understand it it bums me out but i get it
0: Yeah, there is still a very strong, um, I think, pushback against the culture of a lot of artistic institutions in terms of, maybe not culture necessarily, but the perceived culture of of places like the opera where like, you know, well, if we go to the opera, we're going to have to dress up. We're going to have to look good. We're going to have to, you know, get there early. We're going to have to like know when to applaud. We're going to have to do all these sorts of things. And I think that going to a movie theater really removes a lot of that perceived pressure. Now, I don't think that those pressures should exist at all. And I think that opera companies should be doing a better job of convincing people right out of the gate that, um, Hey, you don't have to worry about a lot of these things. Just show up and sit down and like, you know, uh, uh, don't, don't, you know, record the show on your cell phone and you're, and you're good to go. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I think this is really interesting and I would love to see the specific numbers for the opera events that Fathom does specifically. Um, because you know, that's our field, but I, I, I'm, you know, I'm really interested to, I'd be really interested to see how exactly opera specifically is being folded into this uh, fathom situation?
2: I could not agree more. Um, a quick fun update on from the behind the scenes area for our listeners: it looks like we have fully lost Oliver's interconnections, so internet connection. So Weston, it's you and me, buddy. Um, we're gonna we're <laughs> gonna keep doing this. Hopefully, we'll get Oliver back shortly. Um, you know, when we when we talked about some of the people who have passed away in the last few weeks, there were some really interesting, interesting folks with some some really cool stories, you know, David Deltredici, you know, as his, you know, basically being this like father of, of new romanticism. But I did want to make an interesting shout out to um to Anthony Holden. So Anthony Holden was just a very interesting guy. You know, he's known as, you know, this music journalist, this biographer, um, and then he's got this whole other like earnest career as a poker player. You know, he wrote a number of autobiographical books on it, but he was also the first president elected to the International Federation of Poker in 2009. Wow. Um, he is also, he comes by this sort of sport game of it all earnestly um, because his dad was an Olympic gold medalist footballer who eventually became a celebrated sports writer. So this is a, you know, just a very interesting, again, we love we love intersectional kings and we absolutely love the ones that come <laughs> uh the classical music and the sports in the in the way that we do um, what's less interesting to me actually no it's still pretty interesting but what's more disappointing to me uh is the symbolism of this uh this takeover weston let's talk about it
0: let's talk about it so uh basically Valery gergiev obviously is in an interesting position as a musician and I, I think it can be hard even for, you know, a lot of Western Europeans to understand the degree to which these operatic institutions are still very much held as a, an important tool of power by by literally the highest echelons of power in Russia, i.e. Putin. So the symbolism of trying to combine the Bolshoi and Mariinsky, the two most important theaters in Russia, you know, is ve- it is so, so on the nose and genuinely like from a historic perspective, really, really Interesting, even once you get past the you know morality of it all, uh, I, I think that there is because um, th- this is not even something that happened during the Soviet era, right? This goes back to th- to the Czarist regime, right? Which I think is you know very indicative of the aggressively reactionary um, spirit of a lot of what putin has done ever since the invasion of ukraine and of course before that even um there is very much a uh, a notion that
2: th-
0: he who wields the important national music of russia is the legitimate heir to literally the russian tsardom. yeah um And Valery Gergiev is very much Putin's mouthpiece in that in that sense. I I think, you know, people can really it sounds like an exaggeration, you know, because, you know, in the U.S., there is no general director who has that kind of sway or that kind of influence or that kind of, you know, um, uh, not not just ear, but ear to power, but also like being directly directed by power. Um, Yeah, we're not putting the Met and the Phil
2: together because Biden said so.
0: (laughs) No, this this is this is truly historic. It's very interesting. I think that um, the on a purely artistic level, I think it's important to have them remain uh, two separate companies. I think consolidation only serves to, you know, help them be more of a mouthpiece for what Putin wants them to be. Um, and I think it you know, encourages the perception of opera as propaganda among more progressive Russian you know civilians. And it is uh, it's not a good thing, but it's an interesting thing um and i sure hope that his milan restaurant is doing okay
2: (laughs) (laughs) well i mean you know i sort of come at this from sort of two angles uh number one they're running out of people on their team they're they're just they're running out of people on their team everybody's kind of anybody who's rational and has i don't know a heart is probably going to be on the other side at this point also okay i have three points so there's a there's one number two you know if if Putin actually cared about this art, he wouldn't join these ensembles. That's not what this is about. And number three, it's always going to be easier to look after one kid instead of two. So that's part of the reason. He can focus his attention more clearly on on the output if he's only got one set of directors, set of people, set of artists to look at. But this is, I mean, this isn't about the art. This isn't about cost-cutting measures that we've spoken about earlier in this conversation. This is This is a very different and deliberate decision.
0: Speaking of things in the history books, I love this focus that more and more companies are putting on, you know, being environmentally friendly, uh, acknowledging that opera is in terms of usage of resources, a wasteful art form, but is still important and worth doing, you know. And I think this French initiative to take away water from thirsty patrons is <laughs> is a good thing even though uh, you might have to uh, start strategizing when you go to the opera bestie next. Um, I do think that switching to renewable energy is very important, making your sets more recyclable, making your uh, theaters more energy efficient. You know, we can't have opera if the world doesn't work on a basic uh, environmental level.
2: Yeah, if it's on fire, we can't go to the theater.
0: Exactly. And I think that's super important. I would love to see that extended, not just in terms of the background, but I would love to see that extended into a lot of, um, the art you actually see on stage as well. Um, because I, I I think that, uh, 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 you know, you're only going to get to people with that message being front and foremost, instead of just being like, Oh, here's some cool stuff we're doing with our building, you know, uh, move it forward, make an opera about environmentalism. There's, there's already a few, but I want to see it, uh, it, it where the Phantom of the Opera is watching too.
2: <laughs> well, it's, it's funny, you know, in thinking about, you know, our companies doing this sort of stuff, stateside, side. And I mean, this isn't necessarily intentional, but you could draw, you could draw the line, you could make the connection. So as we've, you know, heard about on, on a podcast a couple of casts ago, um, I just went and saw Grounded at Washington National, which, oh my, I cannot say enough good things. Go when it's in New York. Oh my God, go. Um, but, so two things. So when you go to WNO at the Kennedy Center, um, all beverages are in their, um, like their in-house containers. It's like a reusable plastic, cup with a right. lid on it. So they're, you know, they're doing a really good job of like keeping down, you know, the litter, the glass bottles, the cans, the what have you. But also this production in particular, you know, they have these enormous, like there's these 300 LED panels uh, that they're using to do all of these projections of the images. And I went to a talkback session at the end and they spoke about sort of the the tech alignments and the needs and, and people were assuming, oh, well, you built all of this just for this production, right? No, everything is rented. Everything is rented from like local companies. So instead mm-hmm. of, you know, building these big set pieces that may or may not be used, I mean, there's a handful of like smaller set pieces, but the actual like digital waste is not going to be waste in the way that it would be if it were just created for this show. Like they're they're running from local companies here. They'll be running from local companies in New York when it goes there. So it's a – and also they can project literally anything that the graphic designers decide to put up there. So it's it's a more green way, as it were, of, of producing an opera set.
0: And that's the way to do it. That's the way of the future. Ecology is important, and I'm sure Oliver Camacho has many, many opinions, but (laughs) it's time for Good Call, Bad Call. Good Call, Bad Call, on Opera Box Score. Good Call, Bad Call, it's how we end the show. Oliver, I know one bad call was you dropping off into the internet nether sphere for most of the two-minute drill, but now you're back. What do you have for me? Well, um, if you're listening
1: to the show when it drops, don't forget that this Saturday, is the first day of Kalas 100. Yes, Maria Kalos' 100th birthday is December (laughs) 2nd, and we have a whole year to celebrate her. So, uh, yeah, get ready for uh, Kalas 100.
0: Yeah, you can take a break from your Ligeti um, 100 celebrations (laughs) if you are so inclined. (laughs) Ashley Hardgrave, what do you have for me?
2: So now that Thanksgiving has passed us, we are officially into the glut of the holiday season, which means holiday music. Uh, And in true fashion with me offering to our audiences uh, artistic pieces that are not in fact opera, I want to remind you of a little gem. Uh, I want to apologize before even telling you about it, but a little gem called A Christmas Gift for You from Phil Spector. (laughs) Stay with me. Um, so the album is incredible. It's a series of holiday tunes, and it features like Darling, Love, the Ronettes, Phil Spector himself, Bobby Sox and the Blue Jeans, the Crystals. It's all of that like wall of sound era, and it's just so magnificent. And it's it, it always puts me in a great mood. It's a really really fantastic album, and I encourage you to Spotify that bad boy to kick off your holiday season. And don't think too hard about the other things that we know Phil Spector for.
0: I have a bad call that is also seasonal. As Ashley said, it is the Christmas music time of year, which means that I am having full on band kid PTSD because of all the times I've heard sleigh ride over the past week. Um, And if you have if you were in band, you know, you played this piece thirty seven thousand times every single year, and every year it creeps out from its hiding place from under its little rock. Leroy Anderson emerging from his tomb to bring us that little ch and then bada bum bam with the with the with the whip. It is traumatizing. We'll get through it together. I'm here for you. We're your former Band Kids support group here on Opera Box Score. And that is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Get your voice heard and find links to stuff we've talked about at our website, operaboxscore.com. That's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Give back to the OBS on the Support the Team page. Your announcer is Norm Waddell. Your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. And your audio editor is me Weston Williams for co-host Ashley Hardgrave with guest Francesca Zambello I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera as your nose gets elected to Congress and uses campaign funds to pay for an OnlyFans account we're back with an all-new show next week where you'll get more opera headlines more hot takes and
3: more blood and honey join us